Good morning, everyone. Could you go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to John chapter 2? We're going to be studying together this morning. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to help us get our bearings for where we're at in our study of the Gospel of John so far. We've gone a little bit out of order the last couple of weeks uh, in terms of the text, but our text this morning is actually taking place immediately after the text Pastor Billy preached on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And that's where we saw Jesus performing his first miracle, turning water into wine, showing us that he is the new and better wine, uh, and the only one that can truly satisfy our emptiness and purify our sinfulness. Uh, But this morning, we're going to consider Jesus' famous encounter with the Jewish leaders at the temple in Jerusalem, and it's my hope that we'll come away more grateful for both his discipline to cleanse us and his love to save us. Uh, So let's read this section of God's word. Stand with me together as we read his word. This is John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said then, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we do every Sunday, Lord, we come, we ask you to help us to come humbly to your word, to come with ears that are ready to listen, with hearts that are open and ready to receive. Uh, Lord, would you, would you make us attentive to your word? Lord, there, there's so many things, I'm sure, that are on our minds, places that we've got to go and projects that we've got to work on and, um, and plans that we've got to make. Lord, we've got all these things in our mind. Lord, just help, help us now, Spirit of God, to settle us underneath the preaching of your word that we might receive from you uh, all that you want to communicate to us out of this passage today for our souls and for your glory. We pray. Amen. 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 Well, next week, as you guys know, is Thanksgiving Day uh, on Thursday, and that's Thursday, November 24th, and that day will be particularly special to me because it will also have been my granny's 94th birthday. Uh, Now, my granny, she went home to be with the Lord in December of 2016, uh, but it's going to be her birthday uh, this Thanksgiving Day, and... um, She was a strong woman of God. She was a spiritual matriarch for my dad's side of the family and has been, really still is an inspiration to me of what it looked like to love God, to serve Him, to trust Him, and to take His word seriously. She was a dear woman, 
generous with her time and resources, always praying and singing to the Lord, always directing the attention of those around her to the presence and power of God's word. I have very fond memories of her, her smile, her glowing blue eyes, her laugh, her love of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. <laughs> uh, but I also have memories of my granny getting irritated usually with my papa, and usually for silly things like him giving her trouble about doing his physical therapy exercises or for making goofy faces with his dentures or sneaking a cookie behind her back. He was a diabetic, and so that wasn't a cool thing. Uh, but there was this one time where, that I can remember Granny getting uncharacteristically angry. I mean, like, like really angry. Like, Granny's going to whoop somebody kind of angry. <laughs> and, and this is a very vivid memory for me because the one who was on the receiving end of Granny's unusual display of wrath was me. <laughs> and, and I can't tell you what I did to deserve it. All I remember is that I had done something Granny was not happy with, and her entire sweet little countenance had changed. She seemed to grow eight feet tall. I, I could almost see her blood boiling through her old skin and the veins in her, in her arm. And then, and I've got this distinct memory of this, that, that she had her arms shaking as she raised her wrinkly little hand and swatted me on the backside. Like, it's so vivid to me. But and, and she hadn't hurt me. I was terrified. <laughs> uh, but, and it's not because my granny was terrifying. Uh, she wasn't at all. She was just a little five-foot little German woman. But I just remember feeling so terrified because this was not granny's usual calm and collected demeanor. And, and it freaked me out. Something had changed about Granny's countenance, and I, I knew that change had been my fault. <laughs> she was angry because of something I had done. But maybe even more vivid than that memory was the memory I have of what happened immediately after that. And that was the memory of Granny crumbled in a puddle of tears on the floor next to me. Hugging me, uh, weeping, and, and telling me how much she loved me. Maybe some of you grandparents can relate to that feeling and parents can relate to that feeling. Because I know now I've got kids of my own, that, that image, it just shows me that it, it must have took everything out of my sweet grandmother for her to execute the discipline that I rightly deserved. And I think without her even knowing it, Granny, Granny taught me such a valuable lesson that day about both the discipline and the love of Jesus. And I think there's a valuable lesson Jesus wants to teach us today in this text, about both his discipline and his love. Uh, so we're going to begin, actually, in verse 12, which I didn't read. Um, but if you look at verse 12, this is immediately following the wedding in Cana, where Jesus had turned the water into wine. And in verse 12, John tells us this. After this, after this, this episode that we just saw uh, at the, in the preceding verses, after this, Jesus, he, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there. For a few days. Then in verse 13, we read the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he leaves Capernaum. He had gone down to Capernaum. He leaves Capernaum. He goes up to Jerusalem. Um, now the Passover, as you guys may know, was an annual Jewish festival. It celebrated Israel's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And Jesus, like he probably did every year of his life, was making the journey again up to Jerusalem to join the other four or 500,000 Jews that would typically participate in the week-long Passover celebration. And, and this festival took place at the temple in Jerusalem, which had been the place God had given his people where they could go to meet with God, to offer sacrifices for their sins to him, and to worship and pray to him. 
At this time in history, it was the most holy place, the most ho- in the most holy city during one of the biggest festivals of the year for the nation of Israel. And for most attending, the anticipation and expectations, they just must have been so high. But as Jesus entered the temple that day, what he found sickened him. Look in verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So instead of witnessing the reverent sights and sounds of the worship, prayer, and praise of his father, Jesus is bombarded with a noisy, bustling marketplace. Now, I don't have much experience with oxen and sheep, but I did go to a rodeo at the Ector Coliseum this past January, so that's kind of what I have in my mind, just the, the pungent odor of massive horned beasts bumping into one another and kicking against their stalls and sheep, doing those weird little like skittish things they do and bleeding, and it was, imagine it was just stinky and loud and anything but an environment conducive to contemplation and worship, and this is what Jesus encounters. He immediately encounters this, and he immediately determines to do something about it. Look in verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, you may not believe me, but take a look for yourself. The text never explicitly says Jesus was angry. That was a surprise to me when I began to study this, because I was sure I had remembered that this text told us that Jesus was angry, but it doesn't say that anywhere in this text. We see the word zeal, we see consume, we see an exclamation mark or two, but nowhere in the text does it say that Jesus was angry. Now, that being said, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to pick up on the context clues. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, he starts tying some cords together, and it's not because he likes to crochet. He, he makes a whip, and he starts smacking the sheep and the oxen and driving them out of the temple. It's not because he's happy. And he doesn't just use it on the animals. Look again in verse 15. He, he drove them all out of the temple, it says. All. That includes the human beings, you guys. The, the merchants, the money changers. These are grown businessmen who were a few seconds ago sitting there processing cattle. And now they're being chased out of the temple by Jesus and his makeshift whip. I mean, do you, do you have that scene in your mind? I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to show up to worship that day. I mean, I get nervous when I'm at HEB and two people start raising their voices and arguing about who's next in the checkout line. Maybe it's the New Orleans in me, but I'm like, nope, I got to get out of here before people start throwing stuff. Uh, I, I, it had to be mayhem. There had to be screaming and pushing and confusion and clouds of dust everywhere. It had to be absolute chaos. And Jesus doesn't let up. Look, verse 15, he goes on. He, he describes, uh, it describes him picking up money bags and pouring out the coins all over the floors and flipping over the money changers' tables. And then he sets his sights on the poor pigeon people, shouting, take these things away. I mean, it can almost make you wonder, did, did Jesus lose his mind? Like, what is going on here? What happened to the gentle and lowly carpenter welcoming the little children to come sit on his lap? This is a very differently postured Jesus. He's livid, determined, passionate, his eyes enraged with fiery zeal. That's really what's going on here. But we got to be careful that we don't misunderstand something. Jesus had not lost his sanity or his deity. He hadn't lost his cool. He hadn't woken up on the wrong side of the bed. He isn't overreacting. It it may be hard for us to comprehend, but what Jesus is experiencing, it's not the same as when you and I get cut off in traffic. Like, that's not what's happening here. Jesus is angry, but Jesus is not sinfully so. 
Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 4? 426, as he instructed the believers in Ephesus, he said, be angry and what? And do not sin. Now that, to me, maybe to you, feels impossible to do sometimes. <laughs> but what that what Paul is telling us there is that there is a way to be angry without sinning. Because otherwise, Paul would have just told the Ephesians, don't get angry, it's sinful to do that. But that's not what he says. Paul leaves room for the possibility of a sort of righteous, sinless anger. And in fact, he he actually kind of commands it. He says, be angry. So I take that to mean there, there are times when anger is appropriate. There are things that should upset you. Things like poverty and abortion and social injustice and human trafficking, murder, war, famine, disease. These things should make us angry. When evil seems to prevail, the appropriate response for the Christian is to be angry. Not to hunker down on our sofas watching commercials, sticking our head in the sand and hoping everything will just eventually go away. No, as Christians, we're called to speak out against evil, to pray against the spiritual forces at work among us, and to do all we can to resist sin and its advancement in the world around us. But as we do, we must remember to be angry and not sin. That's the difference between us and Jesus. Most of the time, when we get angry, even at wrong, bad, or maybe even downright evil things, we get sinfully angry. We lack self-control. We speak impatiently. We raise our voice. We use hurtful or inappropriate words. We seek to tear people down. What does that look like? It could look like mocking a friend or a coworker behind their back because of something they did to us that we didn't like. It can look like saying things to strangers on social media you'd never actually say to their face. It can look like canceling entire subcultures in our society because of their wrongness or wrong ways of viewing things. Instead of modeling what Jesus showed us from his own life, though a willingness to extend love to the outcasts, the demon-possessed, the swindlers, the prostitutes. I can tell you how studying this passage this week has exposed this tendency to sinful anger in my own life. Sinful anger can look like, for me, speaking impatiently and harshly toward my children when I feel they disobeyed me, especially if I feel disrespected or disregarded by them. I'm too often too quick to speak to them sharply, condescendingly, and out of irritation. I would be ashamed for any of you to hear me speak to you in that way, but but they hear me speak to that way way too often because I think I trick myself into thinking I've, I've, I've got permission to speak to them that way because they're doing something childish. They're doing something sinful. They've challenged my God-given authority as their dad. But that's, that's the deceit. Just because God has given me that position of authority, it doesn't give me a say whatever I feel like saying pass. And we do this all the time. We are sinfully angry. We tell ourselves we're speaking the truth in love, but we're really just blurting out the truth with carelessness. It's a tricky thing to keep in balance, this be angry and do not sin. We should stand for justice. There's a right way for those who bear the name of Christ to confront and oppose evil and sin. But tethered to the call in Micah 6, 8 to do justice, you remember that verse? 
What else does it say? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. There's twice as many things as the do justice. And I think that was on purpose. So love kindness, walk humbly, and do justice. But getting back to our passage, John, John's not calling us to assemble our whips and start a temple cleaning service. Like That's not what we're here for. It's not intended to give us license to start flipping over to the tables of everyone on the other side of our political preference. But you probably as well as I do know that that's the way that this passage can sometimes be used, often be used. Jesus was angry. He was angry at the sin of the Jewish leaders, but his anger never crossed over the sin line. He may have been forceful, but he wasn't cruel or out of control. Those in the temple that day weren't witnessing a maniac flying off the handle. They were witnessing the righteous anger of a loving Savior. And that begs the question, why was Jesus so angry? Well, look back in verse 16, back in the text at verse 16. Jesus comes right out and tells us. He's saying this to the pigeon people. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. What's he talking about? Was Jesus upset that they were selling animals? Well, no. Couldn't have been that. I mean, many people at the Passover had walked for miles on foot to come to the celebration and to make animal sacrifices in the temple. It would have been impossible to travel with the necessary sacrificial ox or sheep or sheep, um, or for the poorest among them to carry a bunch of pigeons and doves. So the Jewish leaders, they had begun to provide these animals for purchase. Originally, they had sold them outside the temple in the Kidron Valley, but eventually, and, and mostly just to make it a little bit more convenient, they started selling them right inside the temple in what was called the outer court or the court of the Gentiles. This was the place designated for non-Jewish travelers to worship God, since only Jews were allowed into the inner court. And there was another problem. According to Exodus 30, everyone 20 years and older was to be counted for the yearly census. But in order to be counted, each had to provide what was called a census tax. It was valued at half a shekel, which went which meant that they had to, uh, oh, sorry, which, which was going toward covering the cost for the service of the temple. That's what the shekel was for. So with so many people traveling to Jerusalem from so many different countries, all with their own currencies, you could see how, how it was, would be helpful to be able to, to, to convert these foreign currencies and then be able to accept them as payment. Um, so the Jewish leaders, along with setting up the sale of the, the oxen and sheep, they set up a bank inside the temple for a small convenience fee. You could convert your foreign currency and pay your temple tax all at the same time. Same time. So, I mean, literally, you could walk up to the temple, buy your sheep, walk another few feet, convert your coins to the Jerusalem half shekel, and then bring your sheep to the priest and have it sacrificed for your sin, and then bam, you're done. A one-stop worship shop. <laughs> But as we can tell from all the whipping and the flipping, that was a big problem for Jesus. And it wasn't the sale of the animals or the conversion of the the money itself. It was that they were doing the selling and the trading inside the temple. When Jesus walked in the temple that day, what he expected to find was reverence. But what he found was commerce. Inside the walls of the sacred space, it was supposed to be a place for contemplation and communion. But these leaders had cluttered it up with with cattle and coins. They had turned it into a market. They had prioritized convenience. They had disregarded the temple's sanctity. They had defamed it, diminished its worth and its value. And in doing so, they had disrespected and dishonored the God to whom the temple belonged. That's why Jesus was angry. And so Jesus wasn't going to allow this to continue. 
Now, remember, what we're reading here, this isn't a journal entry, our text. It's not this this whole book of of John. It's not not a journal entry in John's daily diary. And that's important to remember. This, this is an evangelistic gospel account written down by the Apostle John. And it was written down sometime after all of these events had already occurred. So John, John is in this, this future state writing back on things that had already taken place. And that's important to remember. John, he's, he's crafting every single word of this story with a very intentional, specific, and, and as we believe in the, the inspired word of God, a divinely inspired purpose. Remember, we saw this in John 20, 31. It said, but these are written so that you, whoever is reading this this book, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's purpose. That's what he's doing. Look in verse 17, because John is the narrator of our story. He chooses to include this little editorial side note for us. Look at John 17. I mean, sorry, John 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So, as the disciples are watching Jesus clear everybody out of the temple, John tells us a verse, a scripture pops into their minds as they're watching that. What is that scripture? It tells us that zeal for your house will consume me. But what is that? Well, that's a scripture, a reference from Psalm 69, verse 9. You can turn there if you want to. Um, but I can read that for you. Psalm 69, verse 9, it says this, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Some translations say, has eaten me up. It's another way to to think of that word. So, is that the same thing? For zeal for your house has consumed me. Is that the same as zeal for your house will consume me? No, there's a difference, isn't there? There's a subtle grammatical change that John makes as he quotes the original text. Changing it ever so slightly from the past tense, has consumed me, to the future tense, will consume me. Why is he doing that? By doing this, he's underscoring what the disciples are witnessing. The zeal is consuming Jesus. And he wants to make sure that, the, that they see that reason as the reason for Jesus' outburst. The, the zeal for his father's house, it's consumed him. But John is also cleverly pointing us forward to this next scene where this zeal for his father's house will literally be the thing that consumes or eats up or takes the life of Jesus. So it's very on purpose. Now, before we get into that next scene, you know, obviously we aren't gathered here today in an Old Testament temple. Um, but I wonder, what, what if Jesus were to step through the doors of SGC this morning? What would he find? Just take, take a moment. I'm just asking a bunch of questions, but just, just do some, some own heart assessment. Would he find people zealous for his father's house? People with a passion to see Christ exalted? And the lost saved? Would he find people with an expressive eagerness to worship him together? Would he find people pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Of his Holy Spirit? And seeking to use those gifts to build up his church? Would he find people arriving on time? Because they want to be here. Would he find them staying late and fellowshipping after the service instead of rushing off to whatever they had to do next? Would he find people with an attentive eye and ear to the spiritual and physical needs of their brothers and sisters in the faith? Would he find people willing to park a little further away from the building or willing to scoot in a little closer to one another than you'd prefer in order to free up space for visitors to come and hear the word of Christ preached? Would he find those kind of people here at SGC? 
Would he find people who would desire their worship of him to be as convenient or as non-invasive as possible? Who would want him to require as little from them as possible? Would he find people who say, I'll serve you, Lord, as long as it doesn't cost me that much. As long as it doesn't require too much of my effort or my energy or my time. As long as I don't feel too overextended. As long as I don't have to sacrifice too much or be too inconvenienced. As long as I don't have to trust you too much to provide for my needs. As long as I don't have to talk to that person or be asked to serve in that ministry. Is that what Jesus would find in us? Oh, may it, may it not be so. May we at SGC, may the, may the Christians who call this place home, may we have an ever-increasing zeal for our Father's house, for His glory, for the advancement of His kingdom. And that brings us to the second part of our story. So the, the dust has begun to settle. I imagine everyone who's been inside the temple is now standing outside the temple, sticking around to kind of see what, what would happen. Again, not me. I'm way gone home by now. Uh, but you know, I'm sure there's lots of people who are kind of curious, like, what's going to happen next? Uh, but look in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now commentators, they seem to agree that the ones who we see step up and do the talking are likely the Jewish authorities. These are the, the religious leaders, the ones responsible for the oversight of the temple, and the ones who, have been most, who would have been most affected by this stir that Jesus has created that day. Uh, Jesus, he had left the temple marketplace in shambles, which would have probably been an embarrassment to these leaders. Uh, not to mention the significant financial loss they probably would have incurred for the, the animals being all run out that day, and the huge mess that they now have to clean up. And so they understandably would have been not very happy with Jesus. But it's interesting that they don't immediately arrest Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why don't they just lock the dude up and then we're done? They don't even charge him with rioting. They don't even, uh, like, give him a disturbing the peace violation. Like, n- none of that. And, and I wonder, not just me, but I, I think, uh, as I've read some commentators, they, they, they wonder, like, might this be because um, history has showed these religious leaders that when God comes and does stuff, sometimes it's to get everybody's attention. <laughs> sometimes he does some crazy things, like shooting fire out the sky and... Um, raising people from the dead. Like, so I, I think there was at least some degree of them saying, maybe this might be God. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, John Calvin says this in his commentary on this passage. Uh, when in so large an assembly, no man laid hands on Christ and none of the dealers in cattle or of the money changers repelled him by violence, we may conclude that they were all stunned and struck with astonishment by the hand of God. If they had not been utterly blinded, this would have been a sufficiently evident miracle. That one man against a great multitude, an unarmed man against strong men, an unknown man against so great rulers attempted so great an achievement. I think that's, that's probably a good insight. Jesus' credentials, they should have been sufficiently evident. But the Jews apparently are utterly blinded. Jesus had just given them all the proof they needed, but they they still ask for one more sign. Instead of looking at themselves to see if there was any just cause for Jesus' correction, they just get defensive and demand that he give them a miracle. And I wonder if that's how we are tempted to respond similarly, to respond to the loving whip of Jesus. When Jesus steps into the temple of your heart and says, take these things away, what tends to be your first response? Is it to be self-examining? Or self-protecting? Is yours a posture of humility? 
or a posture of defensiveness? Do you tend to be dismissive of the discipline of the Lord? Or do you accept it when it comes to you? Do you, like the leaders in this, in this story, delay your obedience until God meets you on your terms? That's what they're doing. They're, they're essentially asking Jesus to perform a magic trick for them, something miraculous, something otherworldly that to their natural eyes would prove that he was God. That's what they want to see. Do you do that with God? Because Jesus isn't that kind of God. He doesn't cater to the cravings of his creatures. He defines what surrendering to his authority looks like. So he flips the challenge back onto them. Look at verse 19 and 20. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? It's a curious reply from Jesus, isn't it? You can almost like hear the confusion and even the irritation a little bit in the response of the Jews to him too. It's like they're saying, does this guy really think he can do this? Does he really expect us to get our bobcats out and start demoing our newly renovated temple? There's no way you could build it back in 72 hours. But, but then they start to think like, how, how are we going to prove that he's telling the truth? It was a brilliant reply from Jesus. He knew that for them to take him at his word would require them to exercise faith in the very supernatural power and authority they were questioning. So they basically just had to shut the whole thing down. (laughs) They didn't have anything to say. Like, yeah, right, Jesus, okay, sure. You hear this guy? We've been working on getting this temple rebuilt for almost 50 years, and he's trying to get us to tear it down so we can build it back in three days. Yeah, sure, what a wacko. Okay, everybody, party's over. Nothing supernatural here to see. And then, then it's over. It's done. That's it. Jesus gives no rebuttal. The Jewish leaders seem to have won the argument. They made Jesus look more like a deranged fool than a divine savior. And as the crowd clears, it's as if Jesus, Jesus is left standing there all alone, misrepresented, misunderstood, and publicly humiliated. And, and that's a familiar sight to us 21st century Christians, isn't it? We, we know Jesus looking like that, don't we? It looks a lot like Calvary. And that's why John, as the narrator of our story, gives us another helpful editorial note. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Of course, of course, John, thank you. That's, that's what he was talking about. Jesus was talking about his body, not the physical temple. I mean, sure, Jesus certainly could have raised a few blocks of dirt and formed it into a building. I mean, he created all of us out of dust, so that's not like something that's hard for him to do. But yeah, Jesus, he's not talking about the physical temple. He was predicting his own death and resurrection. He was actually pointing them to an even greater sign than they were asking for. And the Jewish leaders, they missed it. These were the leaders of the temple, the priests, the teachers, the interpreters of God's law to God's people, the ones who should have been most familiar with the ancient prophecies found in God's word. They, of all people, should have remembered prophecies of the coming Messiah, like the one that we see in Malachi 3, verse 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. 
And like fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify who? The sons of Levi. That's the priests. And refine them like gold and silver. They totally miss it. And they're not the only ones. Someone else missed it. At least at first. John tells us in verse 22, look at it. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What was that scripture that the disciples remembered? Well, again, it was Psalm 69. We looked at that earlier. But let's look at it again. And actually, this time, turn, turn there with me. Go, go to Psalm 69 in your Bible. This is a psalm that is written by David. It's not necessarily considered a messianic psalm. There are so, certain psalms that point to, uh, to Jesus. They're like typologies of Jesus. But this one isn't usually considered that. But... Man, listen to the crucifixion language that's foreshadowed in this psalm. Psalm 69, verse 7. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. This is the verse that popped into their head. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That's, that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? He came to redeem a people who would reject him, dishonor him, mock him, abandon him. Eventually, zeal for his father's house would consume him. They would destroy the temple of his body just as, they said he, just as he said they would. But there's a part two of this promise. And it's captured. So we, we sang it this morning. Uh, I didn't write down all the lyrics. We sang this morning in Only a Holy God in verse three. Uh, what other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Only a Holy God. Uh, another hymn that I thought of that captures this so well is, is the, the Gettys modern hymn, In Christ Alone. Again, verse 3. There's something about verse 3's. Um, but there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Zeal for my house consumed me. But Jesus, he doesn't remain a demolished pile of rubble on the floor. What's the next line say? Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. He was resurrected by the zealous power of the Spirit of God. And then it continues, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For why? I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. Man, I love the songs that we sing together on Sundays. Stephen, thank you this morning for picking those songs and helping us to sing what we sang. Uh, John tells us in verse 22, the disciples, they remembered. And they didn't just remember, they believed. And what did they believe? They believed the word that Jesus had spoken. You know who was one of those disciples? John. The guy writing this story. The guy was known... Some of you might know this. It was known as one of the sons of thunder. Is that a, that a phrase you remember from reading in, in this before? He was a guy who knew personally what it was like to receive the loving whip of Jesus. Uh, you know, just thinking about him and his brother wanting to call down fire on a Samaritan village or 
the, the audacity that they had to interrupt Jesus talk, predicting his death to say, hey, you think we could sit on the throne next to you? Uh, I mean, he, he knew what it was like to be disciplined by Jesus. But do you know what John calls himself five times in this gospel? He doesn't call himself the disciple who was whipped by Jesus. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I just think that might be something for some of us here, uh, where, where the title that you give to yourself is one that Jesus doesn't give to you. Where you, where you see your identity, your past speaks over your life something that, that the Lord doesn't speak over your life. You see yourself as a son of thunder. You see yourself as disobedient. You see yourself as a failure. Jesus sees you as the one whom he loves. That made John cherish all the more his Savior's love for him, the discipline that Jesus gave to him. I could just imagine John sitting at a desk writing down these words for us, probably through tears, saying, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He, he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's what he was talking about. Because John, he, he missed it that day on Passover. He, he, he didn't see it. The other disciples, they missed it that day. And John doesn't want anyone else to ever miss it again. That's why this whole book exists. It, it should have been obvious to everyone there that day. Jesus, he was not some raving lunatic. He's not a fanatical protester. He was the son of God. And as he fashioned his whip and drove out the sacrificial animals, fully consumed with zeal for his father's house, the lamb of God was making a bold statement about himself. That he was, in fact, fully God, fully man, and fully able to save. He came, Jesus, as a man. He, he alone was the sinless one, perfect, willing to shed his unblemished blood on our behalf. But Jesus also came as God. And as God, he alone was fully able to absorb the infinite righteous wrath our sin deserved. Jesus came. He came to bear our shame. He took our place, your place. He endured your agony. He suffered as your once and for all sufficient sacrifice. The whip that drives out sin was held in the hand of the one who laid down his life for those sinners. I received that sentence, that quote, in a text message this week from a brilliant theologian that we all know and love. His name's Alan DeSherry. Uh, and I've not been able to stop thinking about that sentence because it, it so helpfully sums up the point of this passage. Let me say it again. The whip that drives out sin was held in the hand of the one who laid down his life for those sinners. For you, for your sinner, your sin. This passage, it's not merely about what Jesus came to drive out. It's also about what Jesus came to bring in. He drove out sin, he brought in his love. He drove out darkness, he brought us into his light. And just as my granny showed me both her discipline and her love that day, I think Jesus shows us discipline in order that we might experience his love. It's why he disciplines us. It's up to us, though, whether we resist or receive that loving discipline. Let's pray.
Lord, we, we, we want to respond well to this sermon. Uh, Lord, we, we always want to do that. We, we want not to just be people who hear, but doers who do. Lord, and I just, I think you're, you're wanting this morning to, uh, to address people. We already had lots of questions that came out in the message that, uh, that your spirit might have been using to address us. Questions about our anger, questions about our posture toward your discipline, questions about our self-sufficiency. Lord, wh- wherever it is that you are speaking to us, Lord, would you, would you give us faith to listen? Lord, help us not to miss what you're saying to us today. Lord, if there are those here who, uh, who have, have been sticking their fingers in their ears and ignoring your warnings, ignoring your discipline, Lord, would you lovingly and maybe even passionately come to them this morning? Lord, and as, the, as you come to them, Lord, would they, would they have arms that are open wide to receive whatever discipline you are bringing to them? Well, this is, this is it's, hard, it's hard to think about because we, we don't see many examples in our own lives of what this kind of loving discipline is like. Lord, but this is the way you treat us. You discipline us for our good. Lord, we, we want to be people who respond. So as, as we close in a second with this song, Lord, would you, would you use this song to just build our faith in you? Um, Lord, if there, if there is repentance that needs to happen this morning, as we're singing, Lord, would you, would you give faith to those to repent, to come, to ask for your help? Maybe it's been a long time since repentance has happened. Maybe, these are, maybe you stirred up this morning some, some long-lasting uh, postures or reflexes or ways of thinking. Lord, you can do that. You're Yahweh. You, you, you went into the temple and you, you made a, a mess of it. <laughs> Lord, you can, you can make a mess of our lives. That's, that's not a bad thing. Lord, we just need to be listening, people who are listening to hear what you're saying to us. Lord, so grant faith, uh, Lord, and, and, and convince us of your love, Lord.